Thank you, Kyle. Um, every week, as we have been doing a series on wonderful words, uh, we have been going through specific words um, from a book that J.I. Packer wrote, and that's really kind of guided us. Uh, sometimes Pastor Dan and I read the particular chapter that's before us. Sometimes we don't. Um, but if you have your Bibles, it is so important for you to go to Ephesians chapter 1, and I, you need to see the text, all right? I want you to look at your Bibles. I want you to see what the Bible says, all right? Um, we need to look at the words that are mentioned in this particular passage that was just read. Let me read to you some quotes. Um, these are from um, really the Southern Baptist uh, Convention. Someone asked, us this, asked me this past week, said, are you a Southern Baptist? And I said, uh, no. And if you were to ask me why, it's because I didn't grow up that way. I grew up in a church that wasn't Southern Baptist, but theologically where the Southern Baptist Convention is uh, when it comes to their theology, our church would be right there. And I'm going to say probably maybe half of the folks who are members of our church are from a Southern Baptist background. One pastor that we were having lunch with, he said, well, if you're not a Southern Baptist, what are you? I said, I'm a Baptist that loves Jesus. Um, but, but these are illustrations that I think from folks who would be uh, in many ways like us from a theological standpoint. But um, in, in uh, 2011, Frank Page says of Calvinism that Calvinism is steadily dividing the church. In 2012, which is nine years ago, um, it was said by the Southern Baptist leaders, Calvinism should not divide the SBC. And this is what was said. About 30% of the Southern Baptist pastors consider their churches Calvinistic. According to a poll last year by the SBC-affiliated Lifeway Research, but a much larger number, 60%, are concerned, quote, about the impact of Calvinism in our convention. In an article on, in 2013, how Calvinism is dividing the Southern Baptist convention. So... As I've talked to pastors, as I've talked to, um, and, and really even, even uh, keeping up with national news, whether it's the SBC or other pastors, the topic that we are going to be talking about today really is a very difficult topic. Um, and and I'm, it's not so difficult if you do what I say, just looking at the Bible and seeing what the Bible says and us agreeing to agree with what the Bible says instead of us going further than the Bible and arguing about logical things that we may or may not agree on and disagree on. Uh, the church that I came from up in Chicago where we served um, for 17 plus years, we had such a spirit in our church that there were times where uh, there, were, there, were, there were both sides in a sense in the church. I had a Sunday school class of over 100 people, 100 adults, and there are times where I was preaching from the Scripture, and I had certain people nodding. And then I would preach the other side, and I'd have the other people nodding. And quite frankly, folks, we have done well as a church to, to make sure that we're focusing on the gospel 
and that we're not so concerned about fighting. And some of you are here and saying, Calvinism, what in the world are you talking about? But as we look here, um, I want to kind of walk you through this particular sermon. This sermon is one that I have preached before, and it's a sermon that I've said for some of you that have come into the church and you want to talk about reformed theology or you want to talk about Calvinism, you want to talk about election, you want to talk about predestination, I have given you a sermon. It might have been a, a, a CD. And it was preached uh, a number of sermons by this particular pastor. In my opinion, I believe that the greatest expositor of our day who's living today, other than Pastor Dan is a man by the name of Mark Minnick, and he pastors in Greenville, South Carolina. He was a professor of mine. And the sermon that I'm preaching to you today is a result of hearing his sermons on this particular subject. And for some of you who've asked, I've actually given you his sermon and said, this is what I believe. Listen, listen to what he says. And as I've, as I've studied this doctrine, as I've walked our church through this, I have explained things in, in the best way I can. A lot of this stuff will be mine, but the majority of the bones, the, the structure is um, from a, a, one of my professors, one that I looked up to greatly, who is a pastor and faithful pastor there in the Greenville area. The reason why I'm going through this particular, um, in this way, is, is what he said is not only biblical, it's reasonable, it's honest and it's practical. Look at your passage of scripture this morning. I want you to look at your scripture. No matter where you stand on this, you have to, you have to ask yourself, what does this mean? In verse number four, it says, Paul writes to the believers in Ephesus these words, even as he chose us. We have to understand what does it mean that he chose us. Verse 4, the latter part, in love he predestined us. What does that mean? In verse 5, it uses the word adoption. What does that mean? In verse 7, in him we have redemption. What does that mean? And let me say this, I was telling Brother Britt earlier that I think that there are people who normally come to our church that may not have come this morning because I sent the outline out last night and it, and it mentions the word that I'm going to be preaching on this morning, election. And there are emotional responses to that word because of the damage that it has done in churches. And we're looking at the text where he chose us in love he predestined us we've been adopted in him we have redemption and there's really a number of responses for some there's a response of fear of like what is pastor Stallnaker going to say and where is he going to go this is a very delicate situation. I don't care for this. Perhaps you had bad experiences in a church in the past and there's fear and for some of you, it might be a sense of pride that you're like, boy, Pastor Stonecker's preaching on my favorite doctrine, and I can't wait for him to let everyone else have it. <laughs> do, you, do you realize this, folks, that when the Apostle Paul 
underneath the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this passage to the believers at Ephesus that there was neither fear or pride in what he said or, or receiving that. And can, can I say this? That there wasn't, there wasn't um, something that uh, you would say, well, it, this is too much for the church to hear and understand. No, these were believers in Christ and God had a word for them to understand what does this mean. The problem isn't what the Bible says. The problem is what man says and how they pit each other together and how they mischaracterize people and how things are misunderstood. And there's a whole lot of pride in the midst of positional theology. And I don't want positional theology. I want to say, what does the Bible say? And what does God want as a result of what it says? And, and if we live that way, there's not going to be fear and there's not going to be pride, but there will be praise. Amen. And this doctrine has sidelined us so much that there's a lot of arguing. And this passage of Scripture very clearly says that when we understand this, it'll be to the praise of His glory. So do not be fearful and do not be prideful because if you are, you have missed the boat of what this particular passage actually says. Ephesians, as I, we walk through it, I think I was talking to Pastor Dan that uh, we started Ephesians about three years ago. But Ephesians is about what God is doing in the church through His Son for His own glory. And, I, and I, I repeated that almost every week, that Ephesians is about what God is doing in the church through His Son and for His own glory. And we see that, that God is working and God has um, been good to the church. What did God the Father do? Look in verse number 3. The Bible says that He blessed us with every blessing. In verse 4, He chose us. In verse 5, He predestined us. In verse 5, latter part of it, in a, uh, He decided in according with His good pleasure and will. And today's outline is, is uh, I'm going for the practical, but I want you to make sure that you understand things. My first point is the history of the debate about this doctrine. Number two, the right approach to this debate. How should we respond to these truths? Questions regarding election and God's sovereignty, and then four closing illustrations. And I don't know that these four closing illustrations actually go along with um, uh, Brother Minnick, the pastor that I um, uh, have gotten most of this material from. Um, as I said, that this doctrine has probably been the most hotly debated topic in history. Of the, of the church, okay? So we're not going to solve everything right now, and we're not going to be so proud that we think we know everything. And sometimes people will ask me, well, what, do you, what about this and this? And I'm like, I, I don't know. It comes to a point that I have to just trust the Lord. And I'm not so smart that I, I know more than God or more than that God has re actually revealed. Um... A couple of things from a historical standpoint. Um, some people would go take this back to um, Augustine and Pelagius. 
that they would have um, said that Augustine is the one who started this about God's sovereignty or man's free will. Okay, so those two names, just let it sit there. Then it goes to the 1500s, and there's Martin Luther that many of you know, and a man by the name of Erasmus. And Erasmus wrote a book in 1524, and it was entitled The Diatribe Concerning Free Will. That's one side. In that, he talked about man's free will. And here comes Martin Luther, and he wrote the book, The Bondage of the Will. So you have these two uh, opposing views, per se. Then you have, later on in the 1500s, you have Calvin, which the movement would be called Calvinism, and a man by the name of Arminius, Arminians. And what you find out is that the, the followers of Arminius, they got together and they have five truths that they settled on about the five truths of their, their belief according to free will. And then Calvin died, and you have his followers that they got together, and they had five truths about Calvinism, which we would know today with an acronym of TULIP, right? How many know what I'm talking about when I say TULIP, all right? That's the five uh, truths of Calvinism. So you have Arminianism and Calvinism, and then you go to the 1800s, and then you have a man by the name of Wesley, who would be on this side, and you would have a man by the name of Whitfield. How many have ever heard the name Wesley, John Wesley, right? Most of you. How many have ever heard George Whitfield, all right? Two good and godly men in the 1800s who had two different views about what we're talking about today. And there are times where I quote Wesley, and there are times where I quote Whitfield. I will quote truth, whether it's Wesley or Whitfield. And sometimes in the Sunday school class, when I talked about being in Schaumburg, sometimes I would quote like a, wet, uh, a uh, Whitfield, and people were like, yeah, Whitfield. Other times I'd say Wesley, other people like, yeah, Wesley. These two good and godly men um, had a public, um, really an embarrassment to the church because they argued about this so much. I'll say more about them later. But if you look at the history of the debate, this, this, this difficulty, it, it really goes beyond or before even Augustine and Pelagius. You, you really have to go back to like Romans chapter 9. And what does that mean? So we don't have everything figured out in 2021. There is a history to this. Good and godly men and women have disagreed on this subject, and God has still used both camps, if I can say it that way. What is our approach considering this truth in Scripture? I think you need to look at it, and there ought to be reverence. What we're talking about is what God has done for His glory. I think there also ought to be humility. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. And what happens on both sides 
is, is that they, they want to claim that they have figured out the secret things of God. And there are certain things I just can't figure out and I don't know. And I just trust the Lord. And I hope that will be your spirit as we consider this this morning. Um, this is by John Stott. He said, Scripture nowhere dispels the mystery of election, and we should beware of anyone who tries to systematize it to precisely or rigidity. It is not likely that we shall discover a simple solution to a problem which has baffled the best brains of Christendom for centuries. So you may have your theology down here. And I, I, wherever you land on this, just realize that there are good and godly people that have differed with you. And there ought to be some humility. I talked about Wesley and Whitfield. Um, George Whitfield passed away before Wesley did. And people ask Wesley publicly, do you think you're going to see Whitfield in heaven? And he responded, no. And the people gasped. And he said, I think he's going to be so much closer to the throne of grace than where I'll be. That's humility. In the midst of disagreement that one understood that even someone who they disagreed with might be a little closer to the throne than they are. In the 2018 SBC convention, one of the speakers said, I think we're using soteriology to disguise power, pride, and tribalism. There's a lot of arrogance on both sides of the fence. And folks, I, I want this truth to settle in because there are churches who will split over this, what I'm preaching on today. We've never really had an issue in our church. Good and godly people can disagree. And hopefully they'll be humble and kind and gracious. I also want to say let's seek to preserve scriptural distinctions. Um, I'll give you an illustration here in a minute that uh, Pastor Minnick uses. He, he uses three bases. The word election means to pick out or to choose for oneself. We have to make sure we understand what election is. Predestination is to determine beforehand, to predetermine. And foreknowledge is God's intimate knowledge beforehand of someone. And so what I want to do is I want to walk through very quickly about these words, okay, from the Scripture. The word election or chosen is used about 51 times in our New Testament. Um, the Lord chose his disciples. Did any of you ever have a problem with the Lord choosing his disciples? I bet you not one, one of you ever had a problem with that. He chose his apostles. Out of these 51 times, 30 to 32 times refers to the election of sinners to salvation. So we can say that the majority of times of these 51 times is talking about God choosing sinners for salvation. So that's the understanding of election. We'll say more about that here in a minute. The word predestined or predestination, our English word horizon is the root of this word. It's that there's a boundary that has been set. 
Um, and what happens is, is we don't understand those boundaries or God's seeing out and choosing that boundary. We want to know why and how, for what reason. Um, and here's what I'm going to say. Can you thank God that he predestined you without even understanding fully what this means and how he did it? Can, can you praise him for something that's beyond your understanding that, that you're here under the sound of the word of God? There's a, there's a reverberation in your heart to the things of God and the spirit of God that you love the Lord and you don't understand all of this, but you can say, Lord, I don't understand it, but I, I'm going to praise you. And there's not pride and arrogance and there's not even confusion or fear. It's interesting to see how this word is used. It's used five times in our New Testament. And let me just kind of give you some ways this is used or the ways that it is used to help you understand that. In Acts chapter 4, it talks about that the death of Christ was predestined. It was going to happen. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Do you realize that God set the boundaries about how Jesus was going to die there wasn't going to be someone that took his life, but he, he marked it out of saying, you can do this, but you're not going to go any further when it comes to my son. He predetermined when Jesus, the God-man, came to earth of how he was going to be taken from this earth. It, it, was, it was decided beforehand. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 7, Christ's death, which this passage says, which is the wisdom of God, was determined beforehand. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, a passage of scripture that, that many of you know, verses 28 through 30. The believer's conformity to Christ's image was predestined, that he, he wants us to be like him. He wants us to live a life like Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5, the believer's adoption was predestined. It's in our passage of scripture. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11, that the eternal inheritance of the believer is predestined. And when we, when we hear that, what we have to be careful about is, is leaping to logical conclusions or leaping to conclusions that the people that we listen to put forth and not saying, okay, here's what the Bible says, and I don't understand it beyond here, and I'm just going to stop here because, because I'm, just, I'm settled right here, and I'm going to trust the Lord. And I have no problem people talking about verses, and what does this mean, and how does this, and, and going back and forth. I don't have a problem with that, but I do have a problem with people having a spirit of pride and wanting to argue or put someone else down when they ought not to do that, when good and godly people have differed. Point number three of my outline here, the questions related to election and God's sovereignty. First question, why did God choose me? Do you remember in Genesis chapter 12, do you remember it, it, that, that the Lord came to Abraham and he said, I want to make of thee a great nation? Did it ever bother you that the Lord came to Abraham and not to someone else? Did that ever bother you? Bet you it never did. Why Abraham? and not someone else. Did it ever bother you that God chose Elijah to go to the widow of Zarephath and minister to her? 
Did it ever bother you that God chose Jonah to go to Nineveh? Did it ever bother you that God chose his disciples? See, we, we can say, of course not. But when it gets outside of the bounds of emotionalism and pride, we, can, we, we want to define what that means. And we want to know everything. But if you take the word and you take the understanding of what the scripture says, say, not a problem. Lord, I trust you. The struggle that we have is we want to know why. How do you explain that choice? On what basis did he make these choice, choices? Look at verse number four of our text. When was I chosen? You tell me, what does the Bible say in verse number four? When were we chosen in Christ? When? Before the foundation of the world. Do you realize that God has been thinking about you for a long time? Does that encourage your heart? If there's any love for the Lord in your heart, it started way back before the world even began. That he thought of you. I've mentioned this quote before. I like what Spurgeon said. He said, I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure that he chose me before I was born or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. And folks, if you have a heart for the Lord, if you know the Lord, it's because of God ministering and doing a work before the foundation of the world. I want you to look back at verse number four and I want to ask you some questions. For what purpose did God choose me? Look at the verse, and let me, let me give you some scenarios, and you tell me if these are right, if these are proper. He chose us that we should be unpunished for our sin. Is that what it says? Yes or no? He chose us for the ultimate objective that we should be merely saved from hell. Is that what it says? He chose us that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Is that what it says? He chose us. Do you see it in the passage? He chose us that we might be holy and without blame before him in love. Is God doing a work in your heart that you are more holy by his spirit, by the power of God, by the grace of God, through the preaching and the reading of God's word, is God changing your life? Is God at work? God's ultimate objective is that we are holy and without blame before him to the praise of his glory. And the question I have for you this morning, are you, are you willing to be holy? Do you realize that the Bible says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord? Is God working in your heart and your life that you're more like Jesus today? And then I want to give you four illustrations that I, I, I hope will help us in understanding this word. Chosen, elected, God's sovereignty, man's free will. 
Um, I like this one, and I, I don't remember specifically who gave this, but it's, 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 a, it's an illustration of two train tracks. And it was likened as one would be that God is sovereign, and the other one is that man has a responsibility, and he chooses. And the point of the illustration is, is that you put a train on the track, and you can't operate with just one rail you have to have both of them because the Lord commands people he commands humankind to believe and you have both of them there and if you stand and you look down a train track and you look far enough you don't see both of them anymore they're blended together and in all human history, I believe when we get to heaven that we will say, oh, now I understand this side and this side because they're brought together. Someone once asked Spurgeon if he could reconcile God's sovereignty in election with man's responsibility. And Spurgeon said, I never have to reconcile friends. human responsibility if you're here this morning without Christ do you know that you're commanded to believe on the Lord and God's sovereignty on the other side the illustration that Dr. Minnick gives Pastor Minnick gives he, he uses an illustration of the three bases of the first base is foreknowledge that God knows ahead of time predestination is second base third base is election or to be called God chose us because he predestined us, and he predestined us because he foreknew us. God's foreknowledge is first in the sequence of time, for God knew all things from the very foundation of the world. Keeping these doctrines separate and understanding them is helpful. And another illustration Pastor Minnick gives is an illustration of a, a great oak tree that there are certain things that you can see, and as you see a tree, you can say, well, yeah, I see that limb, and I see that limb, and I see that limb. And in our text, there are certain things that we can see as we look in Ephesians. We can see that he chose us. There's a limb. We can see another limb. I did it because I predestined you. We can see that. Or we can see another limb. I determined to choose you because I foreknew you. And we can see these things that he says clearly, but sooner or later as you follow that oak tree and you go to the base, that it goes underground. And where a lot of debate happens is there are guys and ladies, guys and girls, they're out there and they're, they're trying to get the dirt out of the ground to see the stuff under the ground that God hasn't revealed. That's, that's where a lot of the debate is. It's not on this one or this one and this one. And you can't argue with me. I don't care what side you come from. The Bible says in Ephesians that God chose you. I'm not saying that. That's what the Bible says. So what does that mean? We can see it. We can, we can believe it. We can understand it. But let's not argue about things that are down here. Because that's what divides and destroys a church. So no sword fighting in the, the parking lot this afternoon over this topic. <laughs> the Bible does not tell us explicitly why he chose 
us according to his foreknowledge? To answer that question puts one into the realm of speculation and human reason. Let's be humble. And then I love this illustration about heaven's gate. And this is by H.A. Ironside. It's in one of his commentaries in Ephesians. It's a little bit more lengthy, and I'm not going to read it to you, but but what he, he talks about is, is that you get to heaven, the illustration, and you see the pearly gates, and before the pearly gates it says, whosoever will may come. And you hear the beckoning, and you hear the preaching, and you go to the pearly gates, and you walk through the pearly gates, because it says, whosoever will may come. But you get through those pearly gates, and you just look back, and it says, I have chosen you before the foundation of the world. And folks, that, that's an illustration of this whole truth. You repent if you're here this morning without Christ. You trust Christ. You run to Jesus. You flee from your sins. And whosoever will may come. But once we get to heaven and we understand that we're Christians, we understand, Lord, it's not because of me, because I was dead, as it says in Ephesians 2. But you did a work in my heart. And you chose me before the foundation of the world. What is the motive of his working in our life? Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. His motive is his love and his will for us. What's the result of this in verses 5 and 6? He adopted us and he accepted us. We're his children. We're not his stepchildren. We're not second-class citizens. He adopted us and he accepted us into the beloved. And then we have to ask, what is the goal of his work? It's for his glory. And if you think about Ephesians written to the church, you think about everything from that point about, about glorifying God. And if you just kind of walk through the subjects of how the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Scripture, challenged God's people that they were to speak the truth in love. In Ephesians 4, they, they were to overcome all bitterness and anger and wrath for His own glory. He predestined us in love unto the adoption of His children so that we might have a, a continual attitude of gratitude. What a good reminder around Thanksgiving. He predestined us in love so that we can have homes that fear God and love God. He predestined us for His glory so that whatsoever our hands find to do, that we can do it with all our might, doing the will of God from our hearts, Ephesians 6. He predestined us for His glory so that we might be victorious in the conflict that we have against Satan and his principalities and powers in Ephesians chapter 6. You got your Bibles open. I want you to just look at some, some, some truths here as, we, as I close, as we close together. I said that understanding this doctrine ought not to lead us from, to fear or to pride. But these truths, as they were delivered to the people, the believers of Ephesus, I want you to see what he wants to accomplish in our hearts today. Look in verse number 6. It says, For the praise of the glory of His grace. Look in verse 12. 
so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Look in verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. See, when we understand this truth, our hearts and our lives are bowed down and there's nothing but praise to what God has done. There's no other response to this. It's that we're humble and we say, Lord, thank you for changing my life. Thank you for making me new. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for giving your son for my sins. So I ask you this morning as we consider this word, can we respond this morning? Respond to the truth, not in pride, but in humility? Can we respond not in fear, but in praise? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to be students of your word. I pray that you would give us humility in our hearts as we consider this. I pray that sometimes I know people get together and they just want to make this an issue of debate, whether it's among family or friends or even in small groups tonight. The purpose of this message is not to have people debate, but to fall on our faces before you and to say thank you for working in our hearts and working in our lives for your glory. I pray that you would comfort all of us in being settled in our hearts and our lives because, Lord, you are good. And not only did you save us, but you satisfy us, and there's no nothing that you'll withhold from us that walk uprightly by your grace for your glory. I pray you'd help us as a church to be able to take doctrines and truths like this and be able to talk about them, but not be fearful, not be proud, but to be amazed about how you've done this. And thank you for your mercy in our life. And truly, your mercy is more. I pray in your name. Amen.